Welcome to On the Middle East, our Monitor's weekly podcast on the major events shaping the region. My name is Andrin Zaman, and this week we'll be talking about Tunisia. The North African country is commonly referred to as the sole democracy to emerge intact from the Arab Spring. That oversimplification of a highly complex and vibrant country is now being tested as never before, with the country's president, Qais Saeed's power grab last month. Some call it a coup, others an opportunity to tackle the country's chronic problems, notably massive corruption and economic stagnation. With us today is Monica Marx, an assistant professor of Middle East politics at New York University, Abu Dhabi. Dr. Marx is an Oxford-educated scholar who has 14 years' experience studying and researching Tunisia, and she's currently in Tunis. Welcome to the show, Monica. It's great to have you on today. Thanks. Great to be here. So you're on the ground in Tunisia. So your best place to tell us what on earth is going on there. Is it a coup or isn't it a coup? Was this a surprise to you? What on earth is going on? Well, everyone across the ideological spectrum in Tunisia seems to agree on one thing which is that the situation as of one month ago, politically, had become really unbearable. Um, The government was paralyzed. Uh, The political parties were in gridlock with the president. It seemed like uh, no one was able to achieve anything terribly effective for the people. The economic situation, which has been uh, steadily deteriorating for the past few years, uh, has been dramatically exacerbated by the COVID crisis, which has decimated Tunisian tourism, which is an important part of this economy, locked down a lot of businesses, um, and thrown a lot of people into sickness and into the hospital. Almost every Tunisian family seems to have a cousin, a parent, a friend, um, who has been very uh, badly sick with COVID. There have been images of the hospitals overflowing. And last month, as there were images of um, patients desperately sick with COVID outside of hospitals, uh, they didn't have enough space. Tunisians also saw images on their television screens of the prime minister, Mishishi, um, just kind of relaxing by the pool. And understandably, this whole combination of factors really incensed people um, and made a lot of people feel very legitimately desperate. Um, The pain has been real. (laughs) Now, into this um, morass stepped Caius Syed, who capitalized on a protest moment Sunday night on July the 25th to announce um, a big change, a big uh, change in the form of a power grab in which he was going to take um, all three branches of government into his hands, allegedly temporarily. Now, whether it's a coup or not, I don't think should be a matter of much debate. Um, If you define a coup technically um, as uh, a president unexpectedly and extra constitutionally amassing power in his own hands, you know, I think it's very clearly a coup or what a lot of analysts are calling a self-coup. In the Latin American context, uh, there's been a history of self-coups where a president does this himself without really a military behind him or any other actor making the classic coup. Uh, It's called autogolpe. Now, The matter that is being hotly debated amongst Tunisians now is whether the president's actions 
are going to be negative, whether the president is a desperately needed savior delivering radical shock therapy to the Tunisian political system, who's going to attack corruption as he claims he will do, who's going to revitalize the economy as people hope he will do, or whether Tunisia is hurtling in the direction of some form of autocracy um, in which the president might go on witch hunts, um, might uh, suspend more parts of the constitution, um, and in which people's lives will be negatively affected, uh, in which the economy will get worse, in which freedom of speech will decline, etc. So I think the reason why a lot of Tunisians who support the president, Kaya Saeed, in this moment are bristling at, at anyone, Tunisian or non-Tunisian, who even as much as mentions the word coup, is because of its negative connotations. They're not disputing the fact that this has been an executive power grab. What they're disputing, those supporters of the president, is um, giving that power grab a negative evaluation. Um, because it's important to remember that a, for a lot of Tunisians, you know, they saw this as, as radical shock therapy that was really desperately needed, and they're very hopeful. Whereas some other Tunisians, I think a minority of Tunisians, but a majority of um, analysts, see this as a form of radical shock therapy that endangers the entire system, that actually murders the patient, <laughs> the patient being Tunisian democracy or Tunisian political pluralism, um, rather than something uh, salutary for the system. Well, Kai's side emerged as something of a dark horse when he won that presidential election. Um, a constitutional law professor that certainly nobody outside Tunisia had really ever heard of. Um, knowing what we do about him so far, um, would you say that he is likely to, you know, no, step back eventually, or will he cling to power? And if so, what, what, what kind of obstacles might he face in doing that? This is the million dollar question, and nobody really seems to know. It's an incredibly blurry situation here in Tunisia. I'm meeting as many people as I can across the ideological spectrum, supporters, detractors from the president, and I'm asking them the same thing. What's the best case scenario? What's the worst case scenario? And what's the likeliest scenario? And you know, while, whilst everyone can kind of game out their versions of best and worst case, when you ask someone what's the likeliest case, they all say, we have no clue because we don't understand this president. Um, this is a person who, to say he was an outsider is a, is a gross underestimation. He came almost from another planet. Um, he has pretty much no networks, no institutional understanding of, of how the state works, it seems. And he's incredibly unpredictable. He's almost the definition of unpredictable. Um, he has both revolutionary and counter-revolutionary elements. You know, on the revolutionary end of the equation, it seems like he is genuinely anti-corruption. Um, nobody knows what his sons look like, which is very special in the Tunisian system. So there's not much nepotism going on. Uh, he takes his coffee from a very shabby popular coffee shop. People like that. And, you know, he's not the golden toilet seat kind of guy. Um, and he really wants to make radical changes, it seems. But, but on the counter-revolutionary end of the equation, he has a very rigid, very lecturing, even hectoring personality. Um, it is well known amongst 
it seems almost everybody who has had an audience with him, be they foreign embassies or local or foreign journalists or local Tunisian civil society organizations, that he does not view meetings as a two-way street. He might very well spend 15 or 20 or 30 minutes lecturing you without allowing you to ask a single question. Um, he might very well um, just deliver you a lecture about your, your, um, your own work, you know, telling you if you're a civil society organization, all the things that he thinks he knows about what you're doing. Um, he seems to also have an almost messianic view of himself. He sees himself as a savior figure, as a, what they call a, a munkhis, a savior. And this raises a lot of questions, of course, and worries in the context uh, in which he has amassed all three branches of power in his own hands. Um, because whilst his supporters believe, and I think you know, they believe very legitimately that he, he seems to have good intentions here, and that he's genuinely anti-corruption, um, it's very possible that even people with the best intentions can become autocrats, um, especially if they believe that they are necessary and their own power is necessary to fix the system. L'état c'est moi, kind of thinking. It, it, he can't name a prime minister. It seems that nobody wants to work with him in, in his government as prime minister. Um, there are different reasons for this. Um, you can't really achieve much in, in the first 30 days as prime minister and this coup situation is supposed to only last for 30 days, allegedly. He doesn't have many networks. People don't wanna martyr themselves you know, on, on this particular altar. And he hasn't announced a roadmap. So we have um, total darkness in terms of what to expect moving forward from him. Increasingly, the president looks like a cat who got stuck on a very high tree and has no idea how to get down. You spoke of a roadmap. Now, the union, the UGTT, which unlike many of the political parties in Tunisia still commands com considerable respect, has spoken of a roadmap that they're going to be presenting to the president. And they do seem to be increasingly airing worry that, you know, uh, democracy needs to be preserved. Do you believe that, you know, um, a constellation of forces that would include the UGTT could have an impact. Well, that's the that's the hope. That's the best hope for Tunisia in this situation. In other words, that Tunisia's most powerful civil society forces, maybe including even some political parties um, and analysts, etc., you know, come together and and form a clear roadmap. Their vision of a roadmap that um, does two things that holds the president accountable and does not let the spiral into autocracy. And that gets us back into a constitutional situation as quickly as possible. Because right now we're living under a system of presidential decree. Um, we haven't seen much movement towards that amongst Tunisian civil society yet. I think they've been waiting. Um, they've been expecting that he would have had more of a plan than he had. And it seems like even amongst his supporters in civil society here, they're a bit shocked that he hasn't even come forward with a plan yet. So I think every day that passes without a semblance of a plan leaves some more space for civil society um, to, to step up to the plate. And, and the hope is that they'll form a national front really that goes beyond UGTT. Um, in terms of exactly what UGTT's roadmap will be, 
um, and to what extent it moves Tunisia back or it could move Tunisia back into a constitutional democratic system in which due process is respected, political pluralism is respected, et cetera, that remains to be seen. Um, you know, UGTT's leadership is, it's political in a way. Um, they want to be popular. <laughs> they want to be with the people. And the president's actions were hugely popular with the people. So it's, it's politically risky for UGTT um, perhaps to stick its neck out a bit too much and, and to be seen as being too critical or trying to stop these populist moves that um, a lot of people are legitimately excited about here. Um, for example, going on um, campaigns of arresting parliamentarians um, for alleged corruption, um, which we might start to see more of. Um, so it remains to be seen what exactly UGTT's roadmap will entail, but you know, the fact that they, uh, you know, they, they have an interest in being with the political winds of the country and that there's historical antipathy towards Anatha, um, the, the so-called Islamist party, the center-right party, which is perceived as the principal loser in this scenario. Anatha has come out as one of the villains in, in this whole drama. Uh, there seems to be a tremendous animosity towards this party. Uh, and when uh, Kais Saeed, you know, did this autogolpe, as you put it, he was one of the first to come out, the leader of Anahda, Rashid Ganushi, and say, this is a coup. And he called for popular resistance. But now we see him dialing that back a bit. Um, and possibly because, as you said, there seems to be so much popular support for the president. What lies ahead for Anatta? He reached out to the president and the president doesn't seem interested in any kind of dialogue with Anatta, even though it's the largest political party in the country. What kind of role can they still play? Anatta is the biggest institutional actor, what we could consider an institutional actor that is, um, defending political pluralism in Tunisia, arguably, because they see it as being very much in their interest that this was a party that was um, heavily persecuted, tortured, etc., under the old dictatorial regime, and they don't want to see things go back, neither for the country nor for themselves. So if we can imagine that Kaya Syed genuinely believes that he needs to amass all the power in his hands and keep that power amassed for you know, who knows how long, to clean up the system, to clean up corruption, to put things back on track. And NAFTA is, is a big obstacle there. Um, and this sets, you know, sets up the, the game board for a, a power clash. So, you know, the worst case scenario for NAFTA could look like making the mistake of taking the bait um, that it seems is on the table and drawing its supporters into the streets, um, being accused of inciting violence, perhaps, um, you know, having some sort of diktat come from on high that would potentially close the party or make it illegal or something of that nature. That's the, the real risk for Anatha. But, you know, Anatha is a, a party that is very good at making concessions, very skilled at negotiating and very happy to play possum. <laughs> You know, seemingly for as long as it takes. Um, so it's been wise enough to, to keep the streets from, from getting too hot by sending its supporters out. Um, in terms of the animosity towards NAFTA, um, 
you know, part of the animosity comes from a history of a lot of misinformation, including propaganda under the old regime and since in a largely unreformed media, painting this party as a terrorist movement um, or painting this party as very radical or un-Tunisian somehow. You know, and, and that part of the equation has, has contributed unfairly to Anatha bearing the brunt of the blame, often being the whipping boy in, in each crisis that's happened since the revolution. But another portion of the animosity is um, I would consider to be very fair. <laughs> Um, because Anatha has been part of almost every single post-revolution government. Um, it has been an important party. It's the most organized party. It's seen as having some of the smartest, canniest leadership, but it, it hasn't been able to get much done for the people. And that's not entirely its fault, but I think it's increasingly become Anatha's uh, fault or uh, Anatha bears more and more of the blame over the past few years, um, because the party has become more and more focused on keeping their leader, Rashid Ghanoushi, in the speaker seat in parliament and keeping that speakership and holding that seat at all costs, rather than foregrounding a vision, a real program to move the country forward. So Anatha, very justifiably, is seen as being part of a um, you know, kind of out of touch, system of wrangling over chairs and speakerships and doing backroom deals with different transactional parties rather than really putting the country first and and that has a lot to do with with leadership um i think not really being responsive to um its own party members uh and broader broader tunisian society and you know i think one important question right now is what does rashid hanushi do is going to do? Is he going to step back or is he going to step forward in this moment? And given how unpopular he, he is and has been for years now in the country, fairly or unfairly, um, I think there's a, a strong case to be made for him um, stepping back. You know, his, his own party largely wants him, I think, uh, or has at least wanted him in recent months and years to maybe consider um, retirement. And certainly um, most Tunisians really have a negative perception of him, again, fairly or unfairly. And these forces within the party who want to see him step down, how would you characterize them? Would, are they sort of rebelling against his pragmatism, you know, saying this party has sort of lost itself in power? Or do they have a different vision that can, you know, completely uh, rebrand the party in a substantive way that would make it more acceptable? I would say they're primarily rebelling against his um, increasingly heavy-handed leadership style within the party itself. Anatha always prided itself on being by far the most internally democratic political party in Tunisia. Um, and it was after the revolution. Um, it had uh, sophisticated systems of internal voting, um, vibrant debates. Um, it was not uh, a one-man party like so many political parties in Tunisia are. But that has changed uh, in recent years. Ranushi has wanted to override and has indeed overridden some of the internal votes within the party. Um, for example, in deciding the 2019 election campaign's party lists, 
he uh, changed the order of people and then switched some people out, overriding the Democratic primaries that Anatha had that year. Um, and this kind of behavior um, really upsets a lot of people in the party because it violates the core of their understanding of what the entire project of Anatha is all about. For so many people who got involved in Anatha, they got involved in it because they believed in it as a collective effort to make a free Tunisia. They did not believe in it as a collective effort to get one leader into the speakership. <laughs> so it's it's very demoralizing to a lot of people. And you know, there have been a number of, of very intelligent, dynamic people in the party who've said, you know, he's he's a very wise. Um, very intelligent, um, philosophical theorist in many ways, Ganushi, and even strategist in many ways. But the tragedy of longevity has set in. And it might be time for him to play with his grandkids or, or write his biography or something. Um, and and there's, a, there's a concern right now that, um, that Ganushi could be led to an exit door that is that does not feel just and does not feel dignified by almost force or duress um, if, for example, um, he is indicted under like a shady judicial case, uh, the independence of which we don't understand in this environment of Otto Goldbe. If he's indicted for something like corruption under this Otto Goldbe environment, that would not be a great exit door for him. So there are um, some people in the party, it's not everybody, but it is a contingent of mostly, mostly younger people in the party who are making the case that the most pragmatic thing for him to do now would be to find find the right exit door. Well, there's always been this uh, sort of framing of him and his party as sort of, as you said, being kind of radical terrorists. Um, and there are actually some real radical terrorists in Tunisia. Uh, so many Tunisians join the Islamic State uh, for now, they seem marginal, but do you worry that, you know, given the situation and the sort of chaos that those radical elements could somehow benefit from the situation? Well, you know, in 2012 to 2015, when I was really doing some firsthand interviews with young people who called themselves jihadists or who ended up going to Syria to fight with ISIS, one pattern that was really clear to me and to others who were researching this issue was that there were some very important push factors that were, that were pushing these kids towards extreme options at the same time as the global jihad in Syria was acting as a pull factor magnetizing them. Those, those push factors included things like um, extreme poverty, lack of options, lack of hope, lack of opportunity, um, constant harassment from the police. Tunisia's um, police state, its security sector, remains largely unreformed since the revolution. And the poorer you are, the more constant denigration and harassment you get from the cops all the time. Um, the perceptions of corruption also um, upset uh, and acted as a push factor for, for some of these young people. And you, know, you would sometimes meet within the same family one brother who was attracted to jihadism and another brother who was getting on a boat to try to go to Italy. Um, 
these were different responses to some similar underlying push factors. And my, my biggest fear in this situation is that some of those socioeconomic problems, which acted as big push factors for young people to get on boats and try to migrate to Europe or to join extremist movements, they might get worse. And, and here's why. <laughs> um, because Kaya Syed seems to understand the institutions of the state so little that he's not offering any kind of economic vision, let alone clear managerial style. He's firing ministers willy-nilly, um, including ministers who have been really essential in negotiating better terms for Tunisia with the IMF agreement, which Tunisia needs if it's going to um, not fall off uh, a cliff with its public finances come October, if it's gonna be able to pay its public salaries. Um, and Kaya Syed had all, has also done some really esoteric things that don't bode well for the business community or increase investor confidence, like, for example, um, going to the employers association here, Utica, and simply commanding business leaders to lower their prices on consumer goods. Obviously, that's not how an economy works. Um, that does not send good signals to current and potential investors. And then combined on top of all of that, you have the reality that we simply do not know what political system Tunisia is going to have in one month's time or two months time. Will it continue to be a parliamentary democracy, however flawed and fragile? Will it turn into more of a hybrid system, a liberalized autocracy, something more on the order of Turkey, for example, that is, you know, neither a democracy nor an all out, you know, bloody Sisi style Egypt dictatorship? Or will it try to reinvent the wheel by going down, it seems like Kaya Syed's idealistic road of trying to craft a system of direct democracy with no parties and potentially um, patchy elections, which looks something on the order of a, a Jamahriya system, like, like Gaddafi had in, in Libya, this very radical reconceptualization of local governance. It's unclear. So all of those factors together do not a good investment environment make, um, do not a stable economic situation make, and I, and I fear could really worsen, worsen things. On the corruption end of it, in terms of trying to reform corruption, that particular push factor, um, Kaya Syed's approach seems simply to be arresting people, arrests. And that ignores the fact that corruption in Tunisia is systemic and you don't resolve systemic problems by arresting individuals simply. The, the problems go much deeper than that, but he does not seem to have any kind of sophisticated understanding of systems and institutions. Well, this sounds very scary. Um, you mentioned Turkey. Now, one of the narratives uh, that's circulating about what's happening in Tunisia for a while is that external powers are at play here. On the one hand, Egypt, UAE, and Turkey and Qatar on the other, uh, with the latter supporting Anahta allegedly, and Egypt and UAE somehow having a hand in what just happened. Uh, is there any truth to, to this? Mm. Well, we know that there are regional and international dimensions of what's happening in Tunisia. Um, regionally, Turkey and Qatar have been more aligned with um, the Anahta party. They've been 
more sympathetic to um, political pluralism in Tunisia so far, um, but definitely biased, heavily biased towards Anatha party. Um, the UAE, Saudi Arabia and Egypt have seen the existence of any democracy in the region as a real threat um, to their autocratic systems. And furthermore, um, these countries have a deeply ingrained, almost obsessive fear of movements that seem to them to be Islamists. They don't have a very sophisticated understanding of Anasa on the ground in Tunisia. It is completely different, <laughs> really, than the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. At best, it is a cousin-like movement. It's really its own thing. But they, you know, they, they don't seem to understand that. So there's there's kind of a, a real interest on the part of those players for seeing Tunisia eliminate Anatha from the political landscape and move more in the direction of autocratic regimes with which they are much more familiar and more comfortable. Um, we don't have a great deal of clear information in the public eye about Qatari funding or UAE funding for their potential uh, or, or hoped for proxies in Tunisia. But we, we do know that there is a history of these different regional players attempting to find proxies and attempting to intervene um, in different countries throughout the region, most notably in Libya, um, which is a huge regional proxy war right now, um, and where this inter interference has contributed to instability. It was interesting to note that um, amongst the very first um, foreign ministers that uh, President Kaya Syed invited to the presidential palace here in Tunis in the week after his um, Atogolpe attempt included the Egyptian foreign minister um, who conveyed Sisi's support from Egypt um, and, and also Saudi Arabia. Um, now, his supporters, the supporters of President Kaya Syed are saying, well, you know, it's it's just simple diplomacy. He gets to meet with, with anybody he chooses. And of course, there are different Arab leaders who are going to come. But of course, as we know from watching, you know, President Donald Trump, for example, whose first foreign visit was to Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia rather than to a Western democracy, presidents choose who they want to entertain, who they want to visit, and how. And these things most certainly send signals. And, and the signals sent from those visits last week certainly did, did nothing to allay the fears of regional interference from Egypt, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia on the part of a lot of more suspicious um, Tunisians and international observers who are concerned about Kaya Syed's actions. Of all these countries, and I would throw in obviously the United States, the European Union, France, Italy, and of course, the big neighbor, Algeria. Um, which would you say has, has the most leverage? Um, most likely France. Um, France has always been the number one international player here in Tunisia. But it has often gone along to get along. You know, France has been very comfortable working with, um, working very closely with the prior um, dictatorial regimes here. Um, it's not entirely clear um, where each one of these players is going to, to throw their weight. But what is clear is a deep sense of concern amongst 
I would say all international players, except for Egypt, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia, that Kaya's side is very unstable. And as, as observers of you know, the international politics of the Middle East and North Africa are very aware of, you know, the West often talks a big game about democracy. But when it comes down to it, what they really care about often is stability. They don't want to see migrants crossing the Mediterranean. They don't want to see um, terrorism problems. They want stable markets, et cetera. And the lack of a plan, I think, um, the Kaisai's lack of a plan, his, willing, his seeming willingness to nuke multiple systems um, in hopes of maybe not reforming them, but radically remaking them, this injects a lot of instability into the equation moving forward. And I think probably that more than anything else is, um, is gonna be his, uh, what threatens him the most in, in eyes of most of Tunisia's international partners. Final question, I could go on forever. This is fascinating, but uh, <laughs> the Tunisian army so far seems to be on his side, but then they've never assumed a, a, a political role, have they, in the post-revolutionary uh, phase? So no. do, do they yeah. matter? Yes, of course, the military matters everywhere, but the military is not front and center in Tunisia like it is in neighboring Algeria or in Egypt, which are both military, um, military regimes, military autocracies. Um, here in Tunisia, the military was born weak on purpose um, in the 1950s when Tunisia got its independence and its first president looked at what happened to Nasser in Egypt, the military coup that brought him to power, and got afraid that you know the same coups that are bringing these guys to power could topple me. So he decided to make it a police state and rely for Tunisia's external security pretty much entirely on France and the United States. The military is very popular in Tunisia largely because it's perceived as being apolitical. Um, it did not support Ben Ali during the revolution, uh, during the, the revolution that ousted him from power in 2011. Um, it has, you know, in the past couple of weeks, it's been doing what it seems to, to have to do according to the rules and nothing more. Um, and it, it too is concerned with its reputation. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us, Monica. That was an amazing uh, sort of uh, conversation. Thank you very much. And we hope to speak, Absolutely. To, speak to you again in the near future and take good care of yourself. For sure. Take care, Ambry. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory 
of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. This brings us to the end of this week's On the Middle East. We hope to be with you again very soon. Thank you for tuning in and have a great week. Thank you.